In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even before he is born, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When they came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Thanks, Dave. All right. All right, all right. I love hearing the Christmas story read. It takes a lot of... Um, attention now to pay attention to that much uh, scripture that's being read, uh, doesn't it? It's, it's, we don't often hear that much, and I know that there was a lot there. 
but we read the Christmas story this year from a section that I don't think is as familiar to many of us, probably. Uh, it's right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, at the beginning of uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 5 of Luke's gospel. And it talks first there about a character that we don't often associate with the season of Christmas, and that character is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John the Baptist story is in all four Gospels, and all four of the stories about the person of Jesus, John the Baptist story is linked very closely to Jesus' birth and his coming. All four of the Gospel writers say in some, real, some, uh, some sense that John is very important to the beginning of Jesus' story. The, but the problem is, is we don't see John represented in the Christmas story very often, do we? There are no John the Baptist lawn decorations. There's no big blow-up John the Baptist. There's not a John the Baptist in anybody's nativity, right? There's no John the Baptist along with the wise men and, and the shepherds and those types of things. Uh, there is, there's just, John seems to be kind of absent from the way in which we celebrate this season. There's not really uh, even a Christmas story that's associated with John the Baptist. We don't even tell the story. Now, part of the problem is that this is due, in fa due to the fact that John and Jesus, though they were cousins, didn't really meet until they were even adults. So that was, is probably part of it. But the second reason, and I think the, probably the most prominent reason why we don't think of John the Baptist very much as being associated with Christmas is because John was weird. He was a different dude. The scriptures tell us that he lived in the desert all by himself. He, the things he ate were honey, which is great, right? We all eat honey. And locusts, which only some of us eat, right? John, and, and John was not very pleasant. He wasn't, the, the stories that the scriptures tell us about this person, John the Baptist, he wasn't a very pleasant guy. He was always challenging the political and religious ruling authorities of his day. And he could be described as a little bit harsh. He calls the religious leaders in his day a brood of vipers. Not real nice. And then he goes and he challenges the king of Israel, a guy at the time whose name was Herod, uh, a guy who eventually had John killed. He challenges Herod because of some, some of the ways in which Herod was living. And he's making a lot of enemies. John was uh, not necessarily a man of peace while he was on the earth. He, he made a lot of enemies. And so, and so we don't often associate John with the silent and holy night that is Christmas Eve. We don't associate him in any significant way with the Christmas story. He, he's, he's absent from our Christmas story. But yet, in the Gospels, he's central. He's so important. He actually, in a, in a sense, in the reading we heard today, precedes Jesus. Before the angel ever comes and announces Jesus' birth to Mary, the angel come and announces uh, John's birth to John's father, Zechariah. And he says, your wife is going to be pregnant. And this person who's going to be born to you guys, even though you're old, is going to have a significant role to play in, in the story of God that's, being, that's going to happen, that, that he's going to have a significant role to play in preparing the way for the Messiah, for, for Jesus to come. This was John's job. You know, I go, at least when I was younger, I went to a lot of concerts. And do you know the least popular person at a concert? 
or the group of people at a concert? The warm-up band. The warm-up band is the least popular person at a concert. Nobody likes the warm-up band. People boo the warm-up band. People throw things at the warm-up band. I d you don't want to go to the concerts I was going to. Uh, but John's purpose is, is clear in the text. He's kind of the warm-up band for Jesus, right? He helps to prepare people's hearts. He helps to get them in the proper mindset. He helps to kind of orient people away from what they were oriented to and towards Jesus. This is what John's job was. He was the warm-up act. But why did Jesus need that? That's the kind of question that I ask. Why did Jesus need a forerunner, so to speak? Someone who would go ahead of him and help people get ready for his appearing. Why did Jesus need this? What was the significance of needing this? And when you read the Hebrew scriptures, when you really dive into them, what you find out is that John was uh, fulfilling the role of what is called a prophet. John was, John was fulfilling the role of a Hebrew prophet. It says in our text that we heard David read tonight that he was in the, in the mode or in the in the school of, Elijah, of Ezekiel, sorry, of the prophet Ezekiel, that John was functioning as a prophet. And often the words of the prophets in the Old Testament come off as quite harsh and jarring, actually, if you read them, because they were meant to kind of wake people up. And John the Baptist is very much a prophet in that sense. Before people can receive Jesus, before they can be uh, before they can become aware of the person of Jesus, they need to be awoken from their slumber, so to speak. And this is how John functions in this story. Never pointing or drawing attention to himself, actually, but always shining a light on Jesus. This is what John does. Speaking about the way that Jesus is coming, and, what, and after he comes, what he's going to do, what, what his rule and reign is going to look like, what his, this kingdom that, that Jesus is going to usher in is actually going to be like. John is the one going ahead of him and telling people, get ready, this is going to happen. And this is what happens to John. John goes ahead of Jesus. He tells the story of the Messiah. He prepares people for him. But he doesn't draw any attention to himself. John is famous for saying this thing, uh, I'm here and I baptize you now, because he was going around in the desert dunking people underwater for the, for the forgiveness of their sins, to kind of wake them up. There's no better way to wake somebody up than to dump a cold Jordan River glass of water on their head, I suppose. I don't know. I don't know. But he's going around and he's, he's waking people up and people began to follow him. And what he said was, uh, I baptize you now in water, but there's one coming after me. There's one who's coming behind me. Whose, whose, uh, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John is always pointing away from himself and towards someone else. And this is what happens. Part of the reason we don't know a lot about John is because as soon as Jesus arrives on the scene in his public adult life, John is gone from the narrative. We never hear from him again. He fills up these really, these thick chunks of scripture before Jesus appears. And then when Jesus appears as an adult in his public ministry, John's gone. He disappears. John is a pointer. He's a signal. He's a spotlight. He's showing people who Jesus is. That was his role, and that's what he does. One writer, uh, the, the writer, uh, in the, one writer in the gospel says this way, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John's job was to reveal Christ to us to show us Jesus, 
And when I read the story of John the Baptist revealing the person of Jesus, I, I can't help but be struck by this idea that, that we all need a John the Baptist, that we all need someone who can come to us and point the significance of Jesus out to us. Because the truth of the matter is, in some sense, we all walk in darkness. We are all those who desperately need revelation about the person of Jesus in our own lives. We just are. And so often, we're not even aware of it. We're not even aware of it. We're just sleeping. There was one Christmas a couple years ago where uh, I got a number of new shirts for Christmas. And I went back into my, I was at my parents' house. uh, And I went back into my old bedroom and I started trying on all these shirts. And I realized that none of them fit. None of them were fitting. They were all the same size of shirt that I had been wearing recently, but none of the shirts were actually fitting. And so I called Ashley, my wife, to the room, and I got really mad at her for not telling me that I had been putting on weight. (laughs) Because I was asleep to it. I didn't, I hadn't realized that I was um, enlarging my territory, as it were. (laughs) I was blind to it. I was blind to it. And practically speaking, so many of us are blind to the reality of our need for Jesus. We are. We go day to day believing that kind of everything is fine, everything is good, I can make it, there's, I, there's enough work to do, and there's a, about enough money to get through things, and I'm relatively happy, and everything's okay, right? Until something happens, and the floodgates open. And the brokenness of our own hearts is revealed. And we are aware in in a very acute way of our own need. And this is what John's job was in the story. To point out our need. To take the spotlight and kind of put it on Jesus and show people ahead of his coming that they are in need of something. To, in the language of the gospel writer, to bear witness to the light. And then Jesus comes. Then Jesus comes. The one that is the light. The one that can provide for the needs of the people. The one who does go about this business all around uh, the area of Judea. Healing people. Touching people. Being near people, forgiving people's sins, doing all of these miraculous things that John never did. Jesus does. And as a pastor, I feel like sometimes my job is somewhat similar to John the Baptist. I've never called any group of people a brood of vipers in my life. Um, I'm going to get there at some point, uh, but, but I've never actually done that. But I feel in some sense like John the Baptist sometimes, of just pointing to the person of Jesus and saying, that's the guy. That's the one. There he is. And sometimes that is a, that's a humbling position to be in because you can't do anything. You can't help people the way you want to help people. You just kind of have to point to the guy. Say, there he is. There he is. There's Jesus. He's the one who can help you. I'm not fit to untie his sandals. 
Because the truth of the matter is, is that when Jesus shows up, and he does in the story, and he does in our lives, when Jesus shows up, everything's different. But we do have to be awake enough. We do have to be aware enough to see him. To receive the thing that he has for us. You know, the story of Christmas is the story of God's healing coming to the earth. It's the story of, of God's peace coming to the earth. It's the story of God's very life breaking into our stories in ways that are unexpected and kind of messy and kind of strange. In a lot of ways, it's exactly what encountering Jesus in one's real life is like. It's never clean. It's never orderly. It doesn't always make sense. There's a lot of doubt involved. There's a lot of struggle in the process. But Jesus is there. And he's available. And he's powerful. Capable of healing. Capable of doing all of the things that we are not able to do for ourselves. That's Christmas. See the light. The light is Christ. The one who's come to make us free. That's Christmas. And tonight, like every other night that you've ever been alive, Christ wants to be for you what you cannot be for yourself. He wants to be your peace and consolation. He wants to be your hope and your joy. He wants to be your king, which is uncomfortable for many of us. If you'll let him. Now, in just a moment, we're going to go to the table. We, we receive communion together on Christmas Eve before we light candles and sing our last few songs. And we do this because Christmas is great. It's beautiful. It's this wonderful reminder of the lengths that God will go uh, to get at each and every one of us. But it is not the end of the story. And Christ's coming is not the reason Christ's birth as a baby is not the reason for his coming. The reason for his coming was to set the world on fire. To live a life, to teach about God, to die on a cross, and then to be resurrected in victory. To communicate to each and every one of us that there is no power stronger than God's love. There is nothing that holds you down that Jesus is not able to lift off your shoulder. There is no reality that we struggle with that Jesus cannot heal. There is no war inside of our own hearts to which Christ can't be our peace. And Jesus gives us this practice, this uh, liturgy, if you will, this thing to do, that's, a, that's what liturgy means, just FYI. Liturgy means some things to do. And the, the thing he gives us to do is communion. And the reason he gives us communion is because he wants to center our hearts and minds in this practice of remembering who he is and what he did. And on Christmas, on the commemoration of his birth and his coming to the earth, we would be remiss if we didn't also remember his ultimate plan and purpose.
for each and every one of us, to die for our sins, to reconcile us to the Father, and to make a way for us into flourishing life, and to await the day that he comes again and sets everything right once and for all. That's why we celebrate communion together, if the band could come up. And so at Grace Community Church, we practice an open communion, which means that you don't have to be a member of our church. You don't have to have ever attended our church before in order to receive communion with us. All we ask is that uh, you attempt to follow Jesus with your life. You know, this practice of communion is one in which uh, we receive it. We receive communion not as a way of getting God's favor or grace, but as a way of uh, receiving or opening ourselves up to the reality of what God wants to do in our lives. Communion can be is a tangible practice. It's a liturgy. It's a thing to do that is a pointer. Again, just like John the Baptist, it points in some real and true sense to the reality of what Christ wants to do in our lives. You know, the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11 all about this practice of communion. And he says to them, For I received from the Lord that which uh, I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant, in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now at our church, we don't pass the plate. We actually get up out of our seats because we feel that stretching your legs in church is a good thing. So we actually have three places that you can get up and you can receive communion to up here. And then as soon as I dismiss you to receive the table, I'll bring uh, the elements back to that third table. So if you're in the back, you can go there as well. And, uh, you can feel free to receive at the, at the table where you are or take the elements back to your seat and receive there. Uh, you could do either of those. That's completely appropriate. Uh, the ba- while we receive communion this evening, the band will play. And then uh, after uh, they feel like everybody has found their spot, uh, we'll sing a few last uh, Christmas carols together. So, uh, uh, and we'll conclude this evening with a candle, with our candle lighting. Now, a few quick instructions before we get there. I will get up and tell and let us know when